let us begin and begin discussing the book, A Peace to End All Peace. Okay, so the book begins by discussing the last days of Europe. Well, more precisely, the last days of old Europe, Europe before the great world wars that completely changed the course of human history. Now, the European powers that existed at this time in the early 1900s, early 20th century, the European powers did not really think much of the crumbling Ottoman Empire. The Europeans, for the most part, European powers, that is, the European nations, they assumed that one day they would eventually have to take the lands of the Ottomans uh, away from the Ottoman Empire, but they weren't really in a hurry to do so. Now, so you understand, the Ottoman Empire by the early 20th century was had gone way down. It had contracted significantly. It was much smaller than it had been at its height. But still, most of the modern Middle East, most of the basically the Levant, North Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula, most of that was still part of the Ottoman Empire. And the Middle East in and of itself, which is still, once again, the Ottoman Empire, had not really become a part of the great game. And we mentioned the great game in a previous episode about when we discussed the Anglo-Afghan War. And we'll discuss the great game in a few minutes, actually. But the Middle East had not really become a part of the great game. And the great game, just so you know, was a series of political and military maneuvers by Britain and Russia for the most part, but also France to a certain extent. These three powers... Uh, vying with each other for global dominance. So let's look at the legacy of the great game in Asia. The great game really begins with travels by European explorers in the 15th and 16th century, beginning with Christopher Columbus, of course, that led to the Europeans having these vast overseas colonies, primarily in the Americas, but also through Africa and Asia as well. For the British, their most important colony was India. This was considered the empire's crown jewel. And once again, I encourage you to go read the, I'm sorry, not go read, go listen to the episodes about the uh, Anglo-Afghan war. They are still available. Available. If you haven't heard them yet, go listen to them and you'll get a better understanding of how the great game impacted uh, Afghanistan and why, uh, and I will say the lengths that Britain went to to protect their crown jewel, India. In order to protect India from their rival, their rivals, uh, France and Russia, Britain would prop up several weak and despotic Middle Eastern rulers as sort of like a, 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 a fort or blocks between India and Russia. One of these weak despotic rulers that the British propped up was, in fact, the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire just happened to be very big. The uh, Ottoman Empire was one of these regimes that the British were hoping would act as a bulwark bulwark or some sort of a blockage between Russia and India because the Ottoman Empire contained or controlled a lot of territory between Russia and India. The British feared that if Russia defeated the Ottomans, then they could march straight through Central Asia onto India and begin taking away parts of India from, from the British unhindered. However, 
by the 1880s, things were beginning to change. So the British public had begun to be, uh, get very upset about Britain's, Britain's support of the Ottoman Empire, mostly because the Ottoman Empire had persecuted some of their religious minorities, part- particularly certain, Christ- certain Christian groups. And so the British public, they kind of forced the British government to stop supporting the Ottoman Empire. And so in response, the Ottomans, who still needed to prop up their crumbling empire, they turned to a new rising power that would be the German Empire. And we'll discuss more of that soon. So as it turns out, actually, the Russians really weren't that big of a deal for the British. The British, they didn't really have to worry about the Russians. They needed to be concerned about the Germans. And so as the British saw the Germans rising in power and becoming stronger and unifying, the British began to form alliances to try to counter this um, new rising power coming from Germany. And it became clear that Russia really wasn't a, a true rival to Britain when Russia was beaten by Japan, another new rising power, in 1905. That became that let everyone know, the world know, that Russia really wasn't a threat to anybody. They had vast potential, they had a large population, lots of natural resources, but the government and the, the authoritarian uh, nature of the Tsar who, that ruled Russia, the ruling family, just didn't allow for Russia to really reach its potential. So in 1907, Britain and Russia signed a treaty. Uh, it's kind of like a treaty of friendship, basically. And that ended the rivalry and basically ended this period of the great game. So now let's discuss the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire before the war, before World War One, that is. The Ottoman Empire was already well in decline by 1914 when World War I started, and it had already earned the nickname of the Sick Man of Europe. The Ottoman Empire came into being about a thousand years ago when nomadic horsemen from the steppes of Asia conquered much of what, what was then known as Anatolia, but we, what we now call Turkey. These horse warriors, they were originally pagan, but over time, their descendants converted to Islam, and one of their descendants was a warlord named Osman, O-S-M-A-N, which would have probably been the Turkish uh, pronunciation of Othman. Uh, Osman, however, he around the 13th century, he established the foundations of what would eventually become the Ottoman Empire in Anatolia, that is modern-day Turkey. So by the 15th century, roughly the time that Christopher Columbus was making his journey, the Ottomans had conquered the Byzantine Empire, most of Arabia, North Africa, and the Balkans. And the Ottomans, their thing is that they were really great warriors, very good at fighting, but they weren't really good at rulers. Uh, The only way they knew how to expand their territory and expand their empire was to keep conquering. They didn't really know how to put governmental and administrative tools in place to keep their empire going. They had to continuously conquer and conquer and conquer to keep their people happy and to keep their, their empire growing and going. But eventually this ran its course because eventually they were going to run up against people who just couldn't be conquered. 
And when they did run up against these foes and enemies who were able to defend themselves successfully against the Ottomans, well, the Ottoman Empire ceased to grow and instead it began to contract, it began to shrink in on itself. The Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, it just didn't, it just didn't have the framework to maintain a huge empire across millions of square miles and across, um, across uh, so many different ethnic groups and religious groups. The only thing really uniting the Ottoman Empire was Islam. That was it. The empire was a theocracy and it was ruled by the Sharia or by the Islamic law. And the Sultan, or the Sultan in plain common English, he held the title of Caliph, which is basically, you know what the Caliph is, but it's supposed to be like the protector and, um, well, it's the uh, successor of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This was the only thing really uniting the Ottoman Empire. But in addition, the thing that undermined that is that the, the one thing undermining this unity was that there was a large contingent of Shiites living within their, the Ottoman Empire, and they didn't share in this unity. They didn't, they didn't acknowledge the, the, the sultan as the caliph of the Muslim world. They had to obey him you know, so they wouldn't get killed or anything, but they, it wasn't a, a true, sincere devotion or loyalty to the sultan. And on top of that, at least 25% of the Ottoman Empire were Christian. And they didn't really care about being ruled by a bunch of Muslims. In addition to the religious differences, you also had a bunch of different ethnic groups. There were Turks, Arabs, Greeks, Armenians, Jews, and several others. And so these groups most often did not speak the same language. They didn't share the same culture. And in many cases, they didn't even really like each other all that much. So the Ottoman Empire, maybe a, a good, strong central government might have been able to uh, keep some sort of unity and, and make everybody work together for the betterment of everyone. But the Ottoman Empire was just too fractured and too weak to really establish a good administration. They were never able to create this strong centralized government. The government basically had control over the large cities and towns, but most of the nation, well, most of the empire was really ruled by local chieftains and local warlords. They were the real power in most of the so-called Ottoman Empire. They gave nominal allegiance to the sultan, but that was about it. It was just nominal. The, the sultan or the caliph or the, the centralized government had very little power to um, to tax them. They did tax them, but it, it wasn't really maintained. They could only really tax the cities. Uh, they couldn't really draft men into their armies and, and make them fight like a true government could. So those are some of the weaknesses of the Ottoman Empire. So by the 19th century, the 1800s, basically, the Ottomans were, they realized that they were falling behind the rest of Europe. And they attempted certain reforms to try to uh, catch up to, Euro to the other European powers. But most of these reforms were only on paper. And it was a case of, of uh, too little, too late. And so, as we had mentioned earlier, by the late 1800s, most of the European powers, they could see the writing on the wall, and they expected one day to 
have to take over the Ottoman lands. And in fact, they had already begun to infringe on, on Ottoman sovereignty. Egypt, while it was nominally part of the Ottoman Empire and nominally, nominally under Ottoman rule, it was occupied by the British. The French also, they proclaimed and reserved the right to protect the Catholic subjects of the Ottoman Empire. Likewise, the Russians, they claimed the right and reserved the right to protect the Orthodox Christian subjects of the Ottoman Empire. So you had all these, these powerful nations basically laying claim to Ottoman sovereignty and essentially stripping little by little the central power's ability to govern itself. Now, let's look at the capital of the Ottoman Empire, Constantinople. Uh, Constantinople was originally the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, what we usually call the Byzantine Empire, and it became the capital of the Ottoman Empire after it, after it was captured in 1453. And from that point, it would serve as the Ottoman capital for the next 400 years, and Constantinople was renamed to Istanbul in 1930. That was already several years after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Constantinople was really more of a collection of towns. On the European side of the Bosporus Strait, the small sliver of water separating Europe from, Europe from Asia and connecting the Sea of Marmara to the, to the Black Sea. I mentioned it. This sounds familiar. I mentioned this somewhere in the past, but... Continuing on, continuing on. Uh, at the end of World War One, by the way, I'm sorry, by the beginning of World War One, Constantinople was a melting pot of several different ethnicities and religions. As a cosmopolitan and large and important capital in Europe, it was also home to a large minority of European foreigners. The Europeans didn't really seem to generally like being in Constantinople, and they tend to spend most of their time in the European part of the city in a neighborhood called Pera. This was also where most of the European embassies were. Now, even though Constantinople was an important city, it was still backwards compared to other European capitals and other major cities of the world. They only started getting electricity or electric lights in Constantinople in 1912. In comparison, New York City had electric lights by 1884. Big difference. Most of the streets in Constantinople were still unpaved and it had very poor sewage and drainage problems. Nonetheless, despite this uh, discord and seeming chaos in Constantinople, the Ottoman government was able to pretty much keep their government secrets secret. And the Europeans, they sent spies into, into Constantinople all the time to try to infiltrate the Ottoman government. But they, the Europeans really had a hard time cracking through uh, the empire's secret and very complex government structure. And... This led to certain problems later on. The Europeans basically never really had a full understanding of how the Ottoman Empire worked. They just knew that it wasn't working, basically, but they didn't really know how the function, how the government functioned and really didn't know how the politics within the Ottoman Empire worked. 
One of the major political parties was the Committee of Union and Progress, which we will abbreviate as CUP, C-U-P. So CUP was led by Mehmed Talat, and he had worked his way up from poverty to become the Minister of the Interior, but he was also a member of several secret societies, including the Freemasons. Talat, uh, he mostly worked in Salonika, in what is now uh, called Thessalonica in modern-day Greece, but Salonika was also home to various secret organizations. Now, these secret organizations, some of them were ancient things like the Freemasons, which had been around for centuries, but others were more or less secret political groups. The current sultan at the time, his name was um, Abdul Hamid II, he was very authoritarian, and he forbade most forms of political activity. He had abolished the constitution. He had also disbanded parliament. So this led to a lot of political dissidents to going underground and forming or joining these different secret groups in opposition to the current sultan. CUP itself, the Committee for Union and Progress, CUP was itself a secret group at the time before they made the big reveal, which we're going to get into soon. Even the military branch in Salonika in Greece was filled with members of these various secret groups. In 1908, fighting broke out between members of CUP and the government. Now, most of the soldiers that we mentioned, they were part of most of the, most of the soldiers, soldiers in Salonika, that is. They were, they were either members of CUP or they were members of other groups that sympathized with CUP. And so... The army, the military in Cup helped, I'm sorry, the military in Salonika helped Cup fight against the central government. And this guy, Mehmed Talat, he used his membership in all these, all of his different uh, secret organizations to mobilize his supporters in Salonika. And eventually, Cup was able to actually take over Salonika. They were able to defeat the government and take over Salonika. And Cup's success forced the government to start making some changes. And Cup kind of forced the government to make changes as well. The constitution was restored. Um, the sultan was forced to step down. Parliament was reestablished to power. And Cup, who became known in the Western world as the Young Turks, they became firm, famous around the world. And they were now considered to be a force to be reckoned with. Uh, when Parliament was reopened, regular old veteran politicians, they returned to Parliament and they took over the seats. But the power behind these politicians was Cup, or maybe we'll call them the Young Turks from now on. As for the British, the British diplomats in Constantinople, they really didn't like Cup. They didn't like these Young Turks. They thought this group was being run by Jews. And while they may sound bad, please bear in mind that most Europeans at this time, they were very anti-Semitic back then. Now, these same British diplomats, while they were suspicious of Jews, they were also suspicious of Freemasonry and all these other secret groups. They believed they had the uh, British diplomats in Constantinople, when they saw Cup taking over, they believed that 
cup was a collaboration between the Jews and Freemasons of Salonika and that they were conspiring to take over the Ottoman government. These British diplomats, they even reported that the Jews had wide political influence in the Ottoman Empire. Now, most of these fears were definitely exaggerated. While there were Jewish members of Cup or Jewish members of the Young Turks, they were a really small, small minority. There were and there were definitely several Freemasons in Cup as well, but you know, most of them were Muslim. And as we go further, we'll start looking to Cup. We can see that, that they weren't, at least in the, be, in the beginning, they weren't really a, a secular group. They weren't trying to disband or get rid of Islam. And we'll get into that most likely in the next episode. Now, as far as Jews running the government, once again, that was overblown and exaggerated because Jews only made up uh, less than one and a half percent of the Ottoman parliament. But the British, because their inability, because of their inability to infiltrate or really truly understand, really for a lack of trying, not because they just couldn't do it. The British really didn't try. They thought they knew everything they had to know about the Ottoman government. But because the British never really took the time to try to understand how Ottoman politics worked, they accepted these erroneous reports. And so the British really did believe that the Jews were on the brink of taking over the Ottoman Empire. And so they decided that the best thing to do, since Jews were about to take over one of the largest remaining empires in the world, they decided that the best thing to do was try to win favor with them. And this led the British to eventually, though it took some time, led the British to eventually eventually declare, declare their support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The British also had an erroneous belief that the young Turks were working for foreigners. Well, however, most of the young Turks were exactly that, young Turkish men. <laughs> they were mostly a bunch of young Turks. And the Turks, the young Turks were actually not Turks, the people, the group, the pol political group, the young Turks or cup, they were actually quite prejudiced. They were prejudiced and they discriminated against non-Turkish people, including Arabs, Jews, Armenians, and others. So they were actually not um, not the foreign agents that the British had imagined them to be. But eventually, the Young Turks, their power continues to grow, and they eventually move to take over the Ottoman Empire. After 1908, that's that kerfuffle that brought the Young Turks into the onto the world stage, the Ottoman Empire continued to decline. They lost wars against Italy. They lost another war against a Balkan coalition. They're then about to lose a second war against uh, a bunch, a group of Balkans in 1913, when the Young Turks had enough and basically took over the government. The Young Turks attacked the imperial court and they proceeded to take over the levers of government. They put members of their own party, members of the Young Turks, took on roles of the minister, minister of finance, minister, minister of war, uh, became the governor of Constantinople, minister of the interior, and it was the minister of the interior which was the real power in the Ottoman Empire. And so now, rather than just playing behind the scenes as they had been before, now the young Turks were officially 
running the government. And so the British realized that they had to change the tactics just a slight bit. And so they sent a new ambassador and uh, to uh, to uh, Constantinople. But in uh, well, this new ambassador, he, however, he liked the Young Turks. He was had a, a bit more of a favorable view of the Young Turks. But like the guy before him, like the British diplomats before him, he still did not really understand the Young Turks. He believed the Young Turks were united when indeed they were not. And the British, they accepted his analysis and the British did not really understand that the Young Turks were in fact very much divided among various factions and there were lots of infighting between them. The British and the rest of the Europeans, they really didn't understand the Young Turks, nor did they really understand what they really wanted to do. From the Young Turks' perspective, they saw that their empire was shrinking. This huge, vast land that their ancestors had built, they could see that it was shrinking. And they were in fear. They lived in fear that the European power surrounding them would eventually just move in and slice up the empire among themselves, just like they had done in Africa. And as we mentioned earlier, many European powers truly expected that to happen. Eventually, they just weren't really in a rush to do so. The young Turks, what they really wanted to do, despite all their political differences and all their shortcomings, they really wanted to, to free themselves from European influence and from European economic dominance. At the same time, however, they admired European technology and advancements, and they knew they needed these things in order to move their country forward. And so they needed to find an ally, somebody to help them catch up to the other European powers. In the next episode, inshallah, we'll see who the young Turks turn to for help. So we're going to stop this here just about 30 minutes and uh, really not much to say. I don't want this to be a, a big thing. Don't want to go too far with this or make it too long. Inshallah, we'll have another episode next week. If not next week, then hopefully the week after that. I will try to do this every week. I'm not going to really commit to anything because then uh, I start feeling guilty if I can't always make it. But uh, this sounds like a fascinating story, and I think we'll all have we'll all have some fun seeing how this plays out while I am preparing the next episode. So other than that, until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Islamic History. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.